This is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA, the Latin American Studies Association. EconoPolitics aims to foster greater dialogue between academics and practitioners throughout the region and to discuss major regional issues. I'm Joseph Marks, host of EconoPolitics. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to EconoPolitics. I'm Joseph Marks, and I'm joined today by Professor Renato Lima from the Asia School of Business in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Welcome, Renato. I appreciate you staying up late to chat with us. My pleasure, Joseph. Uh, great to be here and also with our special guest today, Professor Ben Ross Schneider. Yeah. Today's episode focuses on inequality, business, and education, and our guest today is Professor Ben Ross Schneider, the Ford International Professor of Political Science and Director of the MIT Chile Program in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome, Ben. We are delighted to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Ben, it's not fair to have you on the show for just 30 minutes, so we hope to make the most of our time. I first came across your work in graduate school when looking at business associations in Brazil and very much enjoyed your book, Business Politics in the State in 20th Century Latin America. Perhaps we can begin by asking you to describe how the politics of business groups um, has changed um, since the book came out, uh, both in Brazil and in the region. Um, yes, I guess I would, I would first of all, um note that there's been a, a, a good deal of continuity. Um, when we're talking about business associations and associations particularly for um, uh, uh, encompassing associations, bringing together businesses from multiple sectors. Um, continuity, for example, in the way that uh, in Brazil, there is still no association to group businesses from various sectors and, and the sectoral associations still with sort of corporatist regulation are still among the dominant actors in terms of uh, organized business. Um, similarly, if you take a case like Mexico, the main um, uh, association for really elite business is the largest business groups, the Council of Mexican Businessmen um, the main changes there was that they took men out. So it's now the Council of Mexican Business, but it's still the 40 largest, um, 40 or so largest uh, business groups in, the, in this association. Um, so I see a good deal of continuity there. Um, there's been perhaps more change on the, on the corporate side, but on the organizational side, I see a good deal of continuity in terms, and particularly in comparison of the well-organized cases of Chile, um, Mexico and Colombia, um, and the less organized cases in terms of encompassing associations, and particularly in Brazil and Argentina. <clears throat> um, your, um, your more recent work looks at business and its role in perpetuating or even exacerbating inequality in the region. And a distinctive uh, feature of inequality in Latin America is that, according to you, governments hardly redistribute. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on this? Um, yeah, the, 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 the data here are, are really striking. Um, <clears throat> there have been some, some good studies of uh, uh, inequality in, in developed in OECD 
rich countries, um, and including a few cases from Latin America, where they really disaggregate in very detailed ways how each type of policy that governments adopt can contribute to um, redistribution. Um, and what you find in, in Europe, in the cases where you do see large-scale um, redistribution, uh, is that there are just a, um, a larger um, number of policies that each redistribute in small amounts, um, adding up to cumulative um, redistribution, usually on the order of you know, 20 or 30 percent um, from market incomes to um, sort of uh, uh, actual incomes. Um, whereas you look at Latin America and many of these policies um, don't exist for one. Um, and um, redistribution is, is quite low on the order of 6% on average, um, higher in cases like, like Brazil and, and Argentina, Uruguay, um, but very low in other countries like Chile, Mexico, um, and Colombia. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's, this has changed, you know, it changed a, a little bit over time from 2000 on, there was greater redistribution, um, but it's still, it's very striking, um, the differences. And, and it's also what it means um, as a point of departure is that if you wanna tackle inequality in Latin America, a great deal of it has to come through um, government uh, spending and taxation. Um, so, you know, Europe and Sweden, um, if you look at pre-tax and transfer incomes in Sweden um, or other social democratic countries, it's often just as high as, as it is in, in Latin America. Um, so it's not the market that is determining a lot of the inequality or the differences. It's more the actions of government, whether or not they redistribute. Renato, over to you. Yeah. Sure, uh, Ben, let me take this conversation and, and, and move through the Atlantic and the Pacific uh, and also ask, uh, because we talked about um, uh, business groups and, and, and state redistribution, uh, of course, focusing on Latin America, but you also have a, a different works with your co-author Richard Donner, uh, which uh, analyze issues on uh, middle-income trap and also uh, on empirical material from Southeast Asia, which is also uh, an, a region of the world with a high heterogeneity, uh, with, uh, with different levels of inequality, but it has been growing faster than Latin America. But it's still, you do have issues related to uh, middle-income trap, which uh, uh, you both uh, uh, finds the, the the core of the issue be related to the politics of it. So, so my question is related to what kind of parallels uh, that exist between Southeast Asia and Latin America. Uh, what is the, the the trajectory of Latin America that uh, helps to understand Southeast Asia, or uh, some of the politics of Southeast Asia that is still relevant? Uh, to understand uh, potential development um, trajectories and outcomes for Latin America. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a very interesting set of comparisons. Um, uh, I, I wish my co-author Rick Doner were here to um, talk more about, about Southeast Asia, but um, uh, the, the way we developed the arguments in, in, in that piece um, 
was to look at a series of, of really what are commonalities across the Southeast Asia and, and Latin America, um, and that you could extend to other middle-income countries like um, Turkey or, or South Africa. Um, and the basic idea was to say, what are the, what are the possibilities for um, <clears throat> uh, groups to organize um, and uh, construct coalitions? Uh, and here I'm talking about broad you know, social groups like big business or or um, labor in the formal sector. Um, what are the the likelihood or the possibilities for them to organize collectively in order to create the kinds of institutions that we think are, are characteristic of the transition from middle income to, to high income? Um, and the, the commonalities we saw across the, um, the two regions were really having to do with the, <coughs> um, uh, the fissures and cleavages among these broad groups that made it more difficult for them to come together in a political way. And I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, um, both regions um, have uh, a great deal of foreign direct investment. Um, multinational corporations. Um, and so this uh, provides a basic and deep cleavage um, between the formal, the uh, multinational corporations and domestic business groups uh, on, on the other hand. Um, and this is something we, we go back and we look at sort of what did, what did the cleavage look like in countries that made the transition to high income um, in the uh, 20th century. Um, and if you look at the countries of, of Europe, or the U.S., um, and you know, and we're making the transition sort of mid-century, um, and also the East Asian cases that, um, uh, like Taiwan and Korea, that made the transition in the late 20th century, uh, the role of foreign capital was was um, much less important than it uh, it is in the 21st century in Southeast Asia and um, Latin America. Um, and you see uh, a similar, uh, you know, the main cleavage we see in, on the side of labor is between um, the formal and the informal sector, um, where, um, you know, there is some variation across these, these um, uh, the measure of informality um, uh, across in Southeast Asia as well as in Latin America. But, but overall, something on the order of 40 to 50% of workers are in the informal sector. Um, where collective action is much more difficult and where the interests can be um, sometimes different from those of workers in the formal sector. Um, so you have this deep cleavage. And again, you go back and look at um, uh, the countries of the OECD that made the transition earlier and you don't find this kind of cleavage. Um, you find a much larger share of workers in the, in the formal sector. Um, so that's how we saw the sort of basic differences in terms of the um, big groups of business and, and labor. And, and there's a follow-up question, which is also framing that um, more broadly. In a recent piece uh, published at the Review of International Political Economy, you and Ignacio Puente argues for paying more attention to business and the private sector when explaining development outcomes. Um, one can go back to old uh, discussions on bringing the state back in, arguments from the mid eighties or, or also the rich developmental state literature. But in, in this work, uh, you both make the case for more research on business, 
business as an actor, as an important actor to understand developmental outcomes. Can you share that approach and, and that argument with our audience? Um, yeah, so um, in, in that piece, we wanted to argue that, that um, often business sort of gets assumed away in some of the broader theoretical approaches to development. Um, so as you say, the developmental state literature um, gives you this idea that what you should really be looking at is the bu bureaucracy, industrial policy, and the formal organization of the state with the idea that then they will create the businesses that they need to, to work with. And um, this was, uh, you know, some of the perspective of something, somebody like Chalmers Johnson, which focuses fairly little on business and really in depth on the bureaucracy. Um, I would single out the exception would be um, Alice Amston, whose work was really centrally focused on her book on, on Korea, really looked at the JBOL, the big business groups there. Um, uh, but there's also a, a sort of um, parallel kind of discussion of uh, neoliberal reform and, and state reform in the 90s and 2000s in, in Latin America and other developing countries, which really says, oh, capitalism was really transformed because the state withdrew and left a lot more to the market. Um, uh, uh, we would say no on the, on the other side. Um, if you look at business, it, it, there was a lot that didn't change and that would be the dominance of multinational firms and big diversified business groups. Um, uh, and on the, uh, um, the side of the economists, um, particularly those in, in, of a Northian sort of inspiration where the sort of institutions that matter are so the rules of the game. Um, and North is actually quite explicit that the organizations um, are like business just have to adapt to those rules. And so they're sort of really secondary actors. And, and, and we wanted to highlight research that was saying, no, in fact, you see a lot more. Um, variation in the organization of business um, and both the way it acts um, economically and, and politically that should be should have sort of a separate um, focus of its own um, in addition to the statist and, and market um, perspectives. Uh, so uh, one sort of um, easy example of that would be that the um, there's a good deal of difference between, um, and this is, as you know, in, in the business school literature is, is quite prominent that there's a key difference between a sort of impersonal, professionally managed firm and a family um, managed firm, particularly when you look at the family firms that are passed on to the second and third generation, um, so that um, these firms you know, react differently to market shocks. They may, um, on the plus side, they may do things like hold, um, not lay off workers in the immediate term because they have a longer term perspective. Um, but they can also engage in politics in a very different way because they do have this long-term perspective um, and can use that in order to, um, uh, yeah, develop longer term relations with key political actors that give them um, greater influence. Uh, which also, if uh, Joseph allows me, uh, as uh, one recent participant in this podcast, uh, Matthew Taylor, uh, it's also one point that he explores and he builds upon uh, the contributions from, from Ben on hierarchical uh, capitalism. 
in, in the difference between multinationals not um, uh, participating more in the political arena, the political pressuring for different types of policy versus the, the domestic firms. Joseph. Here we go. Ben, um, you lately have been um, spending some time looking at um, education in the region, and in particular, the quality of education. And you argue that the state in Latin America underinvests in education, which seems, I guess, a bit counterintuitive. Um, I'm wondering if you could um, summarize that argument regarding um, the underinvestment on the part of Latin American states. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a, a crucial issue um, in Latin America and the prospects for um, redistribution and growth going forward. I think the economists now have come to a pretty clear consensus that um, education precedes and drives uh, uh, development, um, certainly in the 20th century, but a, a probably uh, even more in the 21st century and a shift to the knowledge economy. Um, so. Uh, I think it's a crucial thing to understand um, why it is that um, investment in Latin America in education has been lower, in fact, than what you would expect given its, its level of development. Um, so this is uh, uh, really a puzzle as to why this has happened. Um, and uh, I say lack of investment, but I should be more specific is that um, uh, Latin American governments uh, pretty much across the region invested a great deal in the 1990s and into the 2000s in expanding access um, so that um, by, you know, yeah, well into the 2000s, you see that um, almost all countries have near universal enrollment in primary education and, you know, 80 to 90% in, in secondary education, which is great improvement. Um, uh, the trouble is when you look at um, the, the sort of performance on a, a variety of international and national tests um, that basically children are in school, but they're not learning much. Um, and uh, you see this, um, uh, and it's dramatic in the case of, say, something like the PISA um, test. It has its problems, but just as a basic ind indicator, um, uh, it shows that students in Latin America, 15-year-old students, it's only 15-year-olds, um, have something like two years less um, in uh, uh, knowledge um, than their counterparts in the OECD and, and richer countries. Um, so this is really stark difference. Um, uh, and so I started looking at this and actually it came out of the earlier research on, on business because I thought business uh, in Latin America is the sort of main uh, consumer, in quotation mark, the, the main um, uh, uh, group that really could rely on the level of education for um, deciding their, their kind of uh, production strategies. And so I looked across many countries um, uh, in Latin America, um, even, and uh, you know, a range of them have en enacted really um, uh, ambitious reforms uh, on teacher careers in order to address the, the quality problem. Um, and in all those cases, I sort of asked people, was business important in pushing these reforms? And the answer across all cases was no. 
um, that they weren't very interested. Um, there's, there's, I won't go into the full detail, but the, um, Brazil is a, is a very interesting case because um, there are these uh, wealthy found, uh, foundations of very wealthy individuals in Brazil who, yes, have had a great deal of influence in uh, uh, education reform in Brazil, but these are, these, this is business as philanthropy is sort of like the Gates and Walton foundations, um, not business as producers and consumers of these skills. Um, so, so that's an important distinction. And, and it's just, um, you can see on the organized side in, in Brazil, there's really very little interest or concern with levels of education. Um, <clears throat> have, you, have you looked at vocational um, training, vocational education as, um, as perhaps a way out or, um, that separation between traditional um, classic education and, and vocational training? Um, not as much, but I, I have looked at it some um, because uh, um, it, you would think that in particular, this would be an area of uh, vocational and technical education where business is sort of really the direct consumer and should have more interest in um, theoretically um, but it, it, generally speaking, you don't find that um, in Latin America. And, and what you see, um, again, are striking differences. You know, Europe is, is the um, leader in terms of uh, vocational technical education with about, you know, 20 to 30 percent um, of enrollments in secondary education in this more um, technical track. Um, versus, you know, Latin America, which is, uh, in most cases, it's around, on average, sort of 10% or below. Um, Brazil, until recently, was, it was quite low, around 4% of enrollments. Um, uh, so I do think this is important. Um, there is discussion among economists whether it really imparts the skills that are good over the long term, but it certainly promotes a, a more rapid connection of you know, students leaving school and getting into um, better paying uh, jobs. Um, so I, I do think it's part of the solution. Um, it wouldn't be, you know, solve all of the issues of education and, and growth and redistribution. Um, but there's a curious difference uh, for the um, technical education compared, comparing um, uh, Latin America and Europe. And I focus on Europe because um, actually with the liberal market economies in the US and Australia, you find lower levels of technical education. But looking at the difference between um, Europe and Latin America, um, what you find is that uh, students going to, into technical education in Europe are usually drawn from the bottom half of the income distribution. Um, so this is um, a sort of strategy of poorer families and, and in fact of the tracking systems in these countries. Um, uh, the idea being that this is the best way to get um, poorer students into good jobs. Um, uh, whereas in Latin America, what you find is a great deal more of middle-class students going into technical education um, uh, because in, in countries like Brazil or Argentina, um, technical schools have better teachers and they have a longer school uh, day, generally speaking. 
So these are good things too for getting students into university. And so that means the middle class has, has moved into this technical education as well, which is, is, is I think fine from a, a sort of a coalitional perspective because it could mean that the middle class would in fact also push for more um, technical education. Um, but there's a certain sort of opportunity hoarding where these um, middle-class students are taking positions, uh, spots in schools that could principal go to um, uh, poorer families and students. I think everyone should look at Switzerland, which has a, a pretty um, effective um, uh, policy regarding technical education. Renato. Um, ben, I, I... I have one question that uh, uh, it's now more on um, your perspective as um, uh, as, as uh, in, in the teaching component and also service. So in addition to, to research, one thing that we do to advance our profession is through institutional building. And you have been involved in creating REPAL or the uh, Red, Red para el Estudio de la Economia Política de América Latina, which promotes an annual conference in the field and one of the key founding principle of this network is to be an open and, and to, to have an open and eclectic approach to research methods. And, and here I will briefly quote from the website, uh, based on a simple premise that the methods should be selected as a function of the problem to be studied rather than the reverse. It's indeed a very simple premise, but somehow it's important to be reaffirmed. So uh, what why was that created and how do you see the evolution of this network and more broadly on works on comparative political economy? Um, yes, no, I, uh, um, I, I was one of the several founders when we, we um, almost 10 years ago now where we thought, um, you know, we really need an additional space um, for promoting the kinds of uh, scholarship that we thought was important and the kinds of exchanges um, that you would get in a stronger network. Um, so uh, on the network side, one of the, one of the ideas was is we wanted some way or a, 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 an organization that would um, promote greater um, uh, exchange and debate among scholars um, residing in Latin America and those in um, in the in the U.S., but also in Europe, um, so to promote that kind of uh, core debate, um, and the others is as you mentioned, we wanted to find a create a space where scholars working um, with diverse sorts of, of methods um, could see that there was kind of a support network, um, and and here um, both we wanted the sort of a, the um, sort. Of a, uh, welcome different kinds of methods. Um, but one thing we very specifically wanted to promote was um, uh, extensive field research in Latin America, um, sort of to the, the get into um, ex spending extended um, time there, working to build databases um, and so forth um, to extend the sort of empirical research and to make sure our, the theoretical discussions were grounded. Um, in that kind of extensive field research. Um, so, and the other thing, um, you know, we've kind of grown frustrated with these huge conferences um, that have long panels um, where you may be interested in one or two papers, but um, end up sitting through a long session. Um, so we really made it quite a different format that's very intense and focused. Um, 
Uh, so it's still a small operation, but we hope it's having a, a you know an impact in, in sort of showcasing this kind of work and encouraging others to follow along. Um, we're quickly reaching the end of our time, but Ben, given your recent work on education and on business groups, I wonder if you would share with us your thoughts on something you touch on your most recent um, paper um, on the UNDP um, working paper series, which we'll uh, have on our um, show notes, your thoughts on the effects of democracy on inequality. Um, if uh, looking into how business operates and um, the chronic difficulty in improving education, um, how does, what, what conclusion do you derive from, from all of this in terms of um, um, in, in the region, democracy and uh, inequality? Um, yeah, these are the big questions, big debates and, and, and very important. Um, uh, um, I mean, I think there's been great work done. Um, uh, um, Evelyn Huber and John Stevens and, and others who really looked at um, how over the long historical um, spans um, that you do see um, countries that um, are, are democratic, um, have a longer experience with democracy, turn out to have better distribution. Um, uh, and this is of course with the idea that democracy allows space for um, organized labor and leftist parties to, to get into power. And that's where you're likely to see more um, redistribution. So I, I think that's an you know, important starting point. Um, but I think once you get into more, and I should say this is a recent work also done by the, by the IDB, kind of sort of confirms this approach um, that, that is at least this kind of statistical and correl correlational um, uh, benefit of democracy for redistribution. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, given the length of time that we've had democracy, certainly in this last wave, um, that um, democracy may promote more than uh, authoritarian regimes, but it's still not having uh, a great deal of impact. So, the, you know, inequality rates have come down some, um, particularly in the, in the great years of the commodity boom. Um, but it's still advancing quite slowly. Um, so I think that you know, scholars should, should spend more time thinking about, well, in a democracy, then what are the forces that are holding back um, greater redistribution? Um, and in this, in this, in this paper, um, which was part actually a background paper for a very interesting report too at the UNDP, sort of looking at um, what are the causes of inequality and business was, was our charge, but the report also looks at sort of civil conflict and other factors um, that I think are very interesting and worth checking out. Um, uh, anyway, the, the paper that you mentioned, we, we took a step back and said, well, what is it about business that can stop um, greater redistribution? Um, and uh, <clears throat> Um, the, there are a number of issues we look at, but I, I, I'd, I'd highlight a couple. And it sort of starts with this um, point of departure that if states, governments in Latin America are not redistributing much, what role does business have in, in that outcome? Um, and and this, this is a sort of part of a revisionist approach 
Um, and it's been great work by, by um, people like Mike Albertus looking at you know, how land reform is in fact more common in authoritarian than democratic regimes. And so you think, well, this could have something to do with the way business organizes to take advantage um, and have influence in democracies. Um, and you see a great deal of this. Um, Brazil has the, has the best um, example of agriculture where they've created a sort of rural um, agribusiness caucus in uh, Congress has been very effective in um, blocking any kind of land reform there. Um, uh, and Bileng Fernandez has, has some great work on this, looking at the, um, how the um, <coughs> caucus, this particular caucus sort of came together and developed a strategy and, and developed a strategy that took excellent advantage of the way coalitional presidentialism works in Brazil. Um, so gave them a sort of veto power over uh, a good deal of the legislation that would, would affect them. Um, that's a particular interest, but I think you can take a step back and, and see that there are other um, institutional rules that give business a greater power in Latin America um, uh, <clears throat> that allows business to sort of block um, the kinds of taxation um, and redistribution that would, that would um, really affect income inequality. Um, and it goes from things like the malapportionment that gives you know, certain rural districts greater um, weight in national political systems to um, uh, media concentration, um, two family family firms um, that are also more effective in these kinds of democratic uh, politics. Great. Um, ben, we can't let you go without asking our traditional question here at Econopolitics. I'm not quite sure the last time you traveled in the region, but uh, in your travels, can you share with us one or two recommendations um, of a special place um, in any type um, um, that you might want to share with us. Um, yes, sure. And, and this is drawing on pre-pandemic pre kind of memories of field research um, that I hope we'll be able to undertake again soon. Um, and I was thinking, you know, one of the things that um, I um, often do is um, look for great places to run um, in the cities I go to. Um, study. Um, so I thought I'd mention some of those. And the obvious ones are sort of along the shoreline in Rio or in Lima. Um, <clears throat> um, and in, in Rio, it's not just Copacabana and Leblon, but I think it's great to run along the sort of bay side with uh, Flamengo, Botafogo, and Urca. So those are, um, I'd recommend those. And of course, Sao Paulo and Mexico City don't have a shoreline. So I would, there it's the Ibirapuera Park or Chapultepec Park. So I think those are great places. You get to see a lot. And um, uh, <clears throat> so I'd recommend those. I was expecting something more calorific, um, but, uh, but no. Um, this is what you can use after you've right. dined very well. So you can. Anyhow, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, Renato, thank you very much for co-hosting uh, today's show. Um, we hope it's my to have great you. pleasure. Great pleasure to be speaking uh, with uh, Professor Ben Schneider, who I've learned so much. Uh, so it's uh, it's fantastic to to be now in the position of asking questions uh, to him. Great. 
Ben, this has been um, a wonderful conversation. We hope to have you back again soon. Thank you very much. It's been a great opportunity. Thank you very much. To our listeners, thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Please spread the word and let us know what you think. We wish to thank Dominic Wachter for our new artwork and Yusef Negm for the original music. Great job. I hope you like the bell at the end of the music. Tune in again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics.